Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you'll need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's up, you guys? Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful.com here with a name you know. He's been everywhere, and you can check him out. Uh, on his show, 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson, uh, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to weekly. And, of course, now they also have adfreeshows.com, fantastic service with a lot of additional perks. Eric Bischoff, how you doing, Eric? Outstanding, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Great to I, talk to you. It's been a while. It has. It has. I spoke to you early last year, and it's it's funny because some of the things you mentioned back then make even more sense to me now. Like, I... I said to you, hey, you know, in the wild situation that you were to ever go back to WWE, what is one thing that you would you would recommend or you would mention? And you said, sometimes they're too polished for their own good. Like, sometimes things don't seem spontaneous. And as I watched some things unfold, like the Roman Reigns attack, I was like, I see exactly what he meant. I see some of this stuff. It's too polished to believe it. How do you think that has changed or has it in that time since, since we spoke about a year and a half ago? Um, I think for the most part, it hasn't. Now, obviously, the whole COVID thing and having to film in front of no audience um, hasn't helped matters. But I still believe the somewhere within the WWE DNA formula, okay, there is a preponderance of DNA that compels people to overproduce everything it is without question one of the slickest looking in terms of production values nothing compares there is nobody that does live television better than kevin dunn his team in the wwe that being said i don't think it enhances the product and i think over time it's actually hurt the product because it no longer feels like alternative television. It no longer feels like that. You, you could be a fly on the wall at a live event and feel it and smell it just like everybody else does while they're watching it. 
it becomes so sterilized with high production values in unnatural reactions from talent. I'm going to give you one really good example when I'm done with this diatribe that it, it's hard to feel the same passion that the producers and the talent, everybody else wants you to feel. There's, there's a filter um, a, 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 that sterilizes the product between somebody's you know, thought process and by the time it reaches the audience at home, it's just too sterile and it's unrelatable. And a perfect example, like I was going to give you, WWE, and I, I don't remember what handle it was under, but WWE posted a, a Sting's Lost Tapes interview. And clearly it was the interview that was shot backstage with Sting and Randy Savage during a time when there was some big event going on. I don't know what the event was. Um, But that was a great example of a perfect interview between two characters. And the interview enhanced each of the characters and made you like them more. But the reason it worked is because it was improv. It was caught on the spot. And, And everybody stayed generally speaking, within character and had fun with it. But that was such a real moment. And I tweeted, oh, good stuff, right? And within minutes, my social media feed, you know, was bombarded with with comments, similar comments. And I think it's because people want to be able to feel it. I think one of the things that AEW does better than WWE is they don't try to overcompensate. They don't make their product look so good that it becomes so sterile that you no longer feel it. Was that something that you ever brought up during your time there? And if so, how did how did that go over? Uh, no, I, I was I wasn't there long enough, quite, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, and it's just that perspective, that point of view, one which I held before I got to WWE, one that I maintained while I was in WWE. But to be perfectly honest about it, no one else in WWE wanted to hear that about me. That's kind of, I don't want to say dumbing down, that would be the wrong way to say it, but but maybe turning down the production values just a bit and focusing on what felt real and, and, and making it feel just a little gritty, maybe a couple things that just made it really remind you what really is live TV. Because when you watch WWE, unless you already know and have been conditioned to remember that it's a live show, there's nothing about that show that makes you feel like it's a live show versus a tape show. They're indistinguishable because they're too perfect. I brought up, I think I brought it up on one of my shows one time. Like there are elements of like school where you think, okay, maybe I'll never use that. And then years later, a situation happens and you're like, ah, it's a good thing I learned that. I didn't necessarily know what you meant by that until I saw that Roman Reigns thing where he's getting attacked, but there are angles every single place and you see the the thing falling onto him and i'm like man how how don't we know who did this they've got cameras everywhere the it should be mystery solved immediately and i was like that's exactly what eric meant when he said it's a little too polished there there was no way for me to invest in that storyline after that because i knew that if it really wanted to have a conclusion they could have just concluded it within 30 minutes of of that show Right. And I think, you know, the, 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 the thought process you're going through, because now you're watching wrestling as somebody who's, you know, writing about it, talking about it, you're in the business in, in your way. So you probably watch the product differently than the average fan does. Yeah. You might see things like that, that the average fan who doesn't overanalyze or talk about or think about it beyond the hour or two or three that they spend with it, um, they may not pick up on that. But it's still there just because they're not picking up on it. 
doesn't mean that they're not not feeling what you want them to feel when you write this stuff, right? And, and it, you've got to make an effort to be plausible and, and to allow the, the, the audience to have an imagination. Let them engage. You know, we always hear about, you know, in television, you know, we, we want our audience engaged. Well, what does that mean? Everybody uses the word because it's part of our vernacular when we talk about media and content and your relationship with your audience. We want to engage the audience. Well, how can you engage them if you don't give them something thought-provoking to invest in? A mystery, a surprise, a question mark. Well, a question mark is a mystery, but some kind of element of storytelling or presentation that allows the audience to wonder where it's going, what are we doing, in a believable way. You you can't do paint by numbers and and lay everything out and shoot it perfectly, take any and all mystery or conjecture out of the equation other than what you wrote down, which is we want this to be a mystery. And I'm not saying that's how it went. I've got to cover my ass there. I'm saying in general, if you're not giving somebody something specific to really think about and believe there may be different answers to, so it kind of forces them to keep thinking about it and tuning in to see if they're right, the hell's the point? Now, we're going to be a little bit all over the place because it happens every time I interview, like you or Bruce, I'm like, man, I should have asked that, I should have asked that, I should have asked that. Well, there was something I heard you actually ask on one of your podcasts. It was in relation to NWO Sting, Jeff Farmer. And I interviewed him, and he credited you with the idea of of that because I remember you were like, I can't remember where the idea came from. He said, not only did you come up with the idea, but you were like, Jeff, if you let this out, it's done. <laughs> He's like, you cannot let okay. this out. So he All said, right. now, now, "Now I believe. Now I believe it." Yeah, you know, and he's up to that point. I thought, "Oh, that's just Jeff being professionally kind, if you will." But the if you let this out threat, I would have done that. Yeah, and he he said he was like it was the hardest secret to keep, but he said I knew it was one I had to keep for the sake of my career, and he made a pretty good career for himself in Japan. Yeah out of that did that surprise you that that nwo sting character caught fire so well in japan while like after everything i mean after the nwo was over and wcw was a you know intellectual property of wwe um it doesn't it doesn't you know i I think most of us here in the united states uh even people that consider themselves pretty knowledgeable wrestling fans really don't understand the impact of the entire nwo story uh, with Chono and Muta and everybody else, um, the effect that that had on Japan. And I honestly, I didn't even really realize it until a little over a year ago. I went to Tokyo to take part in a memorial event for Masa Saito. And while I was there, there were probably three or four Japanese newspapers that wanted to interview me. And during the course of that interview, I learned from the people that report on the industry. Now, Japanese, these were, you know, mainstream newspapers in Japan. These were not, you know, wrestling news site type. And they were telling me through through the interpreter, obviously, just the amount of money that the NWO storyline over a period of time drew for New Japan to this day, according to them, the NWO storyline and the merchandise associated with it and everything else has drawn more money than any angle in the history of Japan. I'm not saying that. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's absolutely true because I didn't have the ability to research that and don't. 
But this is what I'm hearing. Even if it's half true, it's a pretty significant story. And, and the NWO just is one of those things that once, once it was presented, and originally it was presented properly, the, the, the psychology behind the story, the, the, I hate to even say it in today's environment, but the little you know, touch of anarchy that was woven into so much of what that story became is something that everybody could relate to one way or the other. And it worked because it was believable going back to what we talked about initially. It was a story that wasn't so overproduced until the end and it got overproduced. It became, you know, a cluster, if you know what I mean. It did. I, I readily acknowledge that and take responsibility for that. But in its inception and for about a year and a half or so, maybe more, maybe less, it was one of the most powerful stories in, in, in images in, in the world of wrestling and st- still is today. NWO was still one of the leading merchandise sellers in the WWE catalog. And you see them referring back to it with, with John Cena in the, in the Firefly Funhouse match and things like, yeah, that's the impact that it has uh, over 24 years later. You were really ahead of the curve with integrating the partnership between Japan and WCW. Are you surprised that WWE has never really done that in even the 20 years since WCW uh, moved on? Because... Obviously, WWE has been king of the hill there, but uh, it seems like like it worked out pretty well for, for WCW, and it worked out fantastically well for New Japan. It did. However, there's two sides of that coin. You know, you could also say, well, here's here's the kind of uh, the, the separation of, of church and state, so to speak. With, with WCW, we needed, you know, I, I especially wanted, not only did we need, but I really, really wanted nitro and wcw to have a broader international feel and footprint i felt in order to appeal to the multitude of international markets that were interested in the product the more international we looked the better we still needed to keep the 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 american flavor and vibe because that american vibe is very you know marketable overseas american television works internationally for the most part um and wrestling certainly because it translates across all cultures and languages or most cultures and languages. But I really felt to get a foothold and to improve our opportunities in international television, you know, a a strong Hispanic presence was important. A strong Japanese presence was important. important. Moreover, the the Japanese and the the, the Mexican styles of wrestling um, brought a whole different, not only culture and vibe and feel, but an entirely different, presentation of the of the physicality in the ring you know japanese was wrestling was much more it was crisper it was less flamboyant if that's the right word it was less shakespeare and more competition it was harder hitting it was faster pace which was important to me uh there were a multitude of talents that could enter the ring and just fly all over the place and could do amazingly athletic things which we still see today sure. but they did it they did it with psychology and story in mind as well they weren't doing it for the sake of doing it they were doing it as a part of a story and psychology and that that was really important to me now the other school of thought is we don't need them you know this brand is this brand. We don't want to dilute our brand. We don't want to dilute our message. We want to control our brand to the nth degree. And there is nothing that you see here, think, or even dream about in WWE that hasn't been sanitized one way or the other in terms of its branding message, right? That's cool thought. While it's not one that I subscribe to, 
has worked pretty well for WWE. They don't play well with others. They don't feel the need to play well with others. Yeah. They, they just don't. They don't feel the need to bring, yeah, they'll bring in international talent under a WWE contract and they will be WWE independent contractors and everything they think, do, say, and what they wear will be filtered through that filter that, that exists between WWE and the audience. And you can't argue that it hasn't been successful with them. It has. So you, you mentioned the diluting of a brand. You all were kind of forced to dilute your brand in WCW, and you've been on the record saying that you didn't really want WCW Thunder. It wasn't something that, that you wanted to do. But you had also mentioned, I mentioned ahead of the curve, the idea of doing separate shows well before the WWE brand split. How far into that idea or planning were you? Was was there a lot that, that you had on the table? Like, okay, this is going to be NWO, this is going to be WCW? Because I remember we would sometimes see looks at like an NWO show, like on WCW Saturday night, where they'd have some poor guy out there getting his ass whipped and somebody with a handheld camera while a masked ref would, would kind of control things. Do you have any insight on to, to maybe what you had planned or the ideas of differentiating those shows? That's a really good question, Sean. And and I get asked about that a lot. And and I haven't really had to think about it until really the last four or five months when people have, you know, really asked me to try to, you know, explain why, you know, because I did when, when we were mandated, it wasn't a request. We fought it. You know, I didn't fight it hard enough as I probably should have in retrospect, but I don't have that luxury anymore. We, we, we were mandated. Ted Turner said, go do this. TBS said, I'll put it on the air, but I don't want to pay for it. Nobody wanted to pay for it. We had to pay for it out of, out of our own budget. We had to pay to put a show on a network. That's called a buy-on. Those bitches never work out. They don't buy-ons never work, but we did it because we had to. The initial thought, because by the time the, the Thunder mandate came to us and we resisted it for as long as we could, and Ted finally said, just go do it. By the time we pulled the trigger and started developing it, it's one of the reasons I brought in Bret Hart, because we, mm-hmm. we saw the possibility coming down the road. It's one of the reasons we expanded the NWO beyond the point of making any logical sense at all, because we knew we had to have a roster ready when and if that SmackDown um, opportunity you know, matured, we had to be able to split Nitro and and NWO, Thunder and WCW, okay? About a third of the way through that process, after we we signed Bret Hart, the timeline is not clear to me right now, and I don't have all this stuff written down, but probably a couple months or so, somewhere in there, after we brought Bret Hart in is when... Now with, with with an AOL merger, you know, coming the, into the fold along with the, the Time Warner merger that I think had just been completed or was still in process at some levels, all of a sudden now we were forced to completely redo our our budgets and our books in the middle of all that, and that just that was the beginning of what became a very frustrating and 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 ultimately led to the end of WCW in, in many respects. Um, and, and your listeners or viewers at this point, anybody that reads this doesn't necessarily have to believe me because obviously I'm, I'm trying to defend myself to a degree or explain a situation. Ted, that Ted Turner himself has spoken openly about how much he regrets that, that merger. It, it, the, the merger, but there's a guy by the name of Guy Evans who wrote a book called Nitro, Great. The Incredible Rise and Amazing Fall of 
Nitro, Ted Turner's Nitro. Um, a guy who's a legitimate journalist, mm-hmm. and I and I separate that. I don't mean to be der- derisive towards people who maybe didn't go to journalism school. It doesn't mean sure. you can't write if they can have an opinion about things. But he was a legitimate journalist who did the research and interviewed over 100 people who were associated with the decision-making processes outside of WCW, including outside of WCW, meaning Turner executives from the finance committee and the accounting and the legal departments, all of whom didn't report to me. You know, they may have had a dotted line to me, but they reported to other people in the company. They are the ones who will substantiate a lot of what I'm saying in their own way. I'm not going to repeat myself and repeat me <laughs> word for word. But so much of the problem starting before Thunder was really everybody within the, you know, here, here, I'm going to try to get off this point because I know I talk too freaking much. No, no, no. I, I like that. You said that last time and I'm like, that gets my word count up. I'm thrilled with it. <laughs> I'm gonna make you like, brother, you're like, you could be able to take three weeks, three more weeks off when this is over. Hey, there we go. It, the, the, the frustrating part of, of all of this for me was the fact that so many people, people that read and think they know about wrestling and the guys that write about it, that try to convince people that they know what was really going on when they don't or didn't, they weren't there. You can't imagine how in 1998, when I had a budget that had been approved in the fourth quarter of 97, I'm given that budget. First of the year, I start managing my business based on that budget. Halfway through the year, after I've made a lot of commitments, by the way, all within the parameters of a budget that was approved by Turner Finance, ultimately. Now, halfway through the year, they go, well, nah, yeah, we can't do that. We want you to do these 10 things instead, all of which had to do with increasing my expenses and cutting my budget. And, 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 the, and the ability to continue doing things at the level I was doing them before. And that's when the wheels started to fall. They started wobbling at first. And then one would start really wobbling and the rear view mirror was shaking. And all of a sudden that one falls off and it's not long. Once you lose one wheel, you know, the other three go pretty quick. So by that point, when, when everything unraveled, had, had you communicated to any of the wrestlers, hey, we might be doing this which what we know as a brand split now, like an NWO show, a WCW show, because if so, I'm sure that some of those wrestlers would be like working one TV a week. Sweet. That would be cool. Well, it, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, yeah, the, it would have been better for some of the top talent that we relied upon. For example, when Thunder kicked into gear, we had, and that's one of the things I think that killed it immediately. So I have some pretty strong opinions about brand splits and how they have been unsuccessfully attempted ever since a uh, couple periods of, you know, time when it looked like they might work, but for the most part, it's not been a successful concept anywhere, including WWE, in my opinion. But once you have talent appearing on one show and appearing on your top talent, you know, let's just for discussion, not argument discussion, say that, the top 25% of your roster draws 75% of your revenue, mm-hmm. whatever that formula is. Your stars, your stars draw the money at the end of the day, no matter what the business is, whether it's music, TV, movies, it doesn't freaking matter. For the most part, your top stars draw 75 or 80% of your revenue. 
But when you see those same top stars twice a week, eh, maybe I'll watch them tonight. Maybe I won't. If I don't watch them tonight, I'll watch them Thursday. Oh, shit, I got busy Thursday. Before you know it, you're diluting your own, your, your own talent pool because you're overexposing them and you're overexposing their stories. You're overproducing because you got to keep that story alive across two or two primetime shows instead of one. And you, whether you, I didn't know it, I didn't realize it while it was happening or I would have possibly attempted to change it if I could have, but you're, you're killing yourself. And it would have been easier for some of the top talent to go, Oh, they would have felt better. Because not only, not because they don't, it's not that they minded working, but I would, as a talent, I would much rather keep my stock high, my credibility high. I would rather keep my audience wanting me to come back so they could get more as opposed to overindulging them. They still would have worked just about as much when they weren't at TV, they would have been at a house show. If they weren't on Thunder, they would have been somewhere else wrestling. It's not that they would have been home drinking freaking pina coladas and chasing their wives and girlfriends around a pool. They still would have been working. They just would have not been overexposed. And and set up. And then the opportunity that it would have created for, you know, and I and I get a lot of heat, deservedly so. I'm not trying to evade it, deny it, make excuses for it. Yeah, a lot of that talent that we brought into the NWO was less than star caliber. Yes, they were. But those people would have been a part of a roster and had a more important role had there been a, a, a NWO exclusive show and a WCW exclusive show and two separate brands. So when, yeah, because that, that aspect is so fascinating to me because it was ahead of the curve. I assume they would have been produced a little bit differently, like the NWO show and WCW, because what we see now out of WWE are some very minor things between Raw and SmackDown, but largely they're produced the same. NXT, however, produced pretty differently, at least as far as a visual aspect. Well, yes, but NXT has to be because of the nature of the venue that they produce it in, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be able to get a show, even if you want one, that looks and feels like Raw or SmackDown. And again, NXT was born, or and still is, a, a developmental division of WWE, if you will. Yes, they're putting it on television, but this is younger talent, fresher talent. They get to try different things. They're not held to the same kind of standard. The filter is somewhat different than the filter on small, Raw and SmackDown. So take NXT off to the side. It's different because it has to be by, by virtue of what, what it is and, and more importantly, where they shoot it. But if you look at Raw and SmackDown, different color lights right now. Let's see what time is it. What's the day today? June 1st. Yeah. Right now, fairly exclusive talent. Yeah. That could change in a week or a month or six yeah. months. I see that starting to happen already. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully I'm wrong. I've been wrong plenty of times. Yeah. So I'll, I'll invite this one. But what we're seeing right now is a show where talent, once again, can kind of go back and forth. We'll see how that works. Hasn't worked yet. But beyond that, beyond the semi-exclusivity of the talent currently, one show's red, one show's blue. It's the same people producing it. Of course, it feels the same. It's the same people not writing it necessarily, but they're from the same team of people that are writing it, all of whom have been trained, developed, and and made their way up the food chain, presenting story and, and content to the head filter. 
I mean, come on. Why would anybody expect it to feel different? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. So, yeah, I, I'm glad that I was able to get some answers there because I've always just wondered, like, what would have that? What would that have looked like? You all clearly had a roster capable of being split in half and still maintaining good stuff. I mean, and, and that also makes me wonder, like, would some of the people that left, would they have left if there were more opportunities created between two brands and all that. And I think that would have been a very interesting period. Well, I mean, that's a rabbit hole. You know, that's a hypothetical yeah. rabbit hole. You, once you go in, you can't come out. Exactly. Like hotel California for rabbits. Um, who knows, you know, had, had the merger not occurred, had WCW, like so many other companies, another book, if, if people really want to understand, if you really, really, want to understand and be able to talk about WCW, its impact, its history, the good, the bad, the good decisions, the bad decisions, read Guy Evans' book, and then then read a book by an author by the name of Nina Monk, M-U-N-K. She wrote a book a long time ago called When Fools Rush In, and it was a, it was a great, and she's not a wrestling person, she's a, she's a journalist, but she wrote a story about the merger. So it wasn't just WCW that got hacked, slashed, um, and mistreated as a result of everybody's dream of increasing what's referred to as an EBITDA within their respective divisions so that their stock options you know, would be worth even more money than they had been if they didn't quite meet, meet those EBITDAs. It was all driven, not want to say by greed, it's, 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 it's the market. It's what people do in publicly held companies. But there was such a, a mad rush to get that EBITDA up to, and I think it was like 18 or 20%, which in previous years where we were considered to be successful, it was 10 or 11 and we had to do it by robbing Peter to pay Paul. And unfortunately, WCW and, and a lot of other companies were Peter and got robbed by Paul. Had that not occurred, there's a lot that there's a lot of dominoes that wouldn't have fallen the wrong way, in my opinion. But we'll never know if I'm accurate or not accurate, full of shit or not. We'll yeah. never know. You talked about going down a rabbit hole. ESPN did that with the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s recently unbelievable documentary series the last dance and dennis rodman's profiled on there obviously and wcw is brought up and i the whole season i'm personally as a bulls fan i'm like they gotta cover that there's no way they can't cover that because of of just how that unfolded and today it's unthinkable for me to even imagine somebody being like nba finals I'm going to go to Nitro. I'm going to go to Raw, something like that. And that back then was, it just wasn't an NBA team. It was a culture-changing NBA team at the time. And Dennis Rodman, one of the most famous athletes in the world. Did you personally get any pushback from the Bulls? Did you get anything from from the higher-ups at Turner or anything that positively, negatively about that? Ironically, I didn't, Sean, oh, wow. which is, and I say ironically, because my boss at the time was a guy by the name of Harvey Schiller. Mm-hmm. Harvey Schiller was president of Turner Sports. One of Harvey Schiller's most important jobs as head of Turner Sports was to manage and maintain the working relationship between Turner Broadcasting and the NBA. Yes. Because Turner Broadcasting held the NBA rights on TNT, and I think still do. Or they do. Before. 
So the fact that this was all occurring during the NBA playoffs <laughs> with a with a company WCW that was a part of Turner Broadcasting that held those rights is you know unique enough in and of itself becomes even more hard to believe when my boss was the guy whose job was on the line for maintaining that relationship. And to answer your question, no, I never got any, any real pushback. I got a couple questions. Harvey, you know, was curious, but not in an overhanded way. That, that was something that I was like, man, because NBA is still a prime piece of content for TNT. It's appointment viewing for me. Like I, I want to tune in Tuesday, Thursday nights, see what Shaq and Charles Barkley are going to say. And to think about how long that relationship has been maintained and to, to see hey, and other properties got him. Part of me wonders like did were, were Turner probably pretty happy because they're benefiting on two properties at that point. Cause I'm sure there are a lot of people that wanted to tune in and say, well, is Dennis even going to show up at the game? This week, like what's what's going to happen there? There are so many unique elements to that that we do not see today at all. We're not going to see Tom Brady skip a practice. Well, we might see Gronk skip a practice and do raw, I guess. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, and I think that's for let's be honest about it. You know, first and foremost, Dennis Rodman is a guy that comes along once every hundred years, right? He, mm-hmm. he was just, a, he was an incredibly talented, just top, top in his game as a rebounder um, athlete who was kind of peculiar. Yeah. You know, he did his own thing. I mean, this guy showed up in you know, a wedding dress to sign books. I mean, he, he was a whack dude, right? In, a, in I think a great way. Yes. Um, so that's part of it. You're not going to find a lot of athletes that would be willing to do some of the crazy stuff that Dennis did. Maybe close. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think even more reason why you won't see it again today and it becomes harder to imagine is because I think not, not because of what Dennis did, but if you look back to the mid nineties, even before WWE with Lawrence Taylor and other people, NFL players, um, I, I think once the NFL and the NBA and other leagues started seeing talent from other leagues and and other sports, as well as their own getting into the ring and doing these physical things, knowing that they're doing them during their off season, which according to their contracts at the time was legal. Yeah. Nothing that prohibited them from doing it at that time. And they all went, "Uh uh-uh, we got $80 million wrapped up in this dude over the next five years. And he's out there getting bounced around like a ping pong ball. No, we're not going to let that happen anymore. And I think a lot of contracts now, you have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's so difficult. You know, look at Ben Roethlisberger, you know, several years ago, riding a motorcycle off season, almost, you know, almost killed him, but certainly had an impact on the season. And I think those types of things have now gotten owners and leagues to the point where they go, okay, from now on, you know, no hang gliding, yeah. you know, no shooting yourself over the, you know, Snake River Canyon in a rocket ship, no wrestling. You know? Aaron Boone lost the contract because he played basketball in the off season one time and there you go. hurt his ankle. I remember Pac-Man Jones came into TNA and the Cowboys were like, even though you're suspended, you cannot physically touch anybody during this entire run. So they had to have him doing like leapfrogs over people in his one spot in the match. Like they're very particular about that and probably with good reason. Uh, so uh, we, we've still got some stuff I'm, I'm very interested in. You've, you've worked for AWA, which that was my favorite episode of your show because I didn't know a lot about the AWA. And getting to hear that aspect of things was, was so unique. You've worked WCW with Ted Turner, although you've said he wasn't as involved as many others. TNA with Dixie Carter. <laughs> WWE with Vince McMahon. How would you contrast and compare maybe Vern, Vince, and Dixie as I would imagine they were all a little more hands-on? You know, I it, it's I can find more similarities between Vern and Vince. I mean, Dixie... We'll talk about Dixie in a minute, but I think there, there were parallels between Vern and Vince that I can see. Not a lot of them, but both men, while they had divergent views of the world and more importantly, business, and as much as I love Vern Gagne, always will and will always respect him for the opportunities he gave me, and I mean that sincerely, Vern was kind of stuck in the 70s. He, he really, really was. And his solution to solving the problem that he had in the 90s was to revert back to the formulas that worked in the 70s and <clears throat> into the early 80s. And he, he was so stubborn. He was so entrenched and, and, and believed in, in himself so much that he, he wasn't open-minded enough to genuinely embrace another way of thinking and another way of going about it. I'm not saying that he could have... Um, and things would have been differently because what Vince McMahon did, and more importantly, when he did it, you know, Vince was brilliant. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. Vince saw an opportunity that no one else saw before anybody else began to even think it was possible and acted upon it in a very aggressive way and took no prisoners in the process. So I don't think anything Vern would have done ultimately would have changed the demise or lack thereof, of AWA. It may have put more money in Vern's pocket, Mm -hmm. but it still would have ended up pretty much the same way. But the fact that they both had vision, they were both steadfast in their their beliefs, they both acted upon those beliefs, right or wrong, good or bad, outcome be damned, there's a similarity there. Now, let's talk about Dixie. (laughs) 
And and I'm not going to bury. I like Dixie Carter. You can bury Dixie. anybody you want here. I mean that. No, I know I can't. I, I, I believe you, me. I, I give you a free platform to bury whoever you want. There's no way that I'll make it a headline and run a story out of it. No, no, no. Ever. I'm not even. Worried about, I'm not even worried about that. I say the same. <laughs> I say the same thing on my own show. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's easy for me to talk about the frustrations, the challenges, and, and the missed opportunities and things like that. Because they existed. They, and by the way, they existed under me too. Okay. I'm not immune to this, but in, in, as, and neither is Vince McMahon. Okay. With AEW jury's still out so far. They're doing almost everything right. Good for them. It's early and I hope they continue. <clears throat> so when I, when I'm being critical of, of my time in TNA, it doesn't necessarily reflect on any one individual. Now, I may say things, you know, from time to time to kind of a little shot or maybe looking for a chuckle, but Dixie is, number one, she's a very intelligent woman. She really is. And she's incredibly savvy in terms of of her her ability to sell and to get buy-in. And I'm talking about people at, at, at very high executive levels. They, she gained a lot of confidence from people within Viacom you don't do that if you're an idiot yeah you don't do that if you have zero talent so she was a very accomplished woman and a very intelligent woman and I dare say please don't anybody misinterpret this and write about it the wrong way keep it in fucking context people she was charming as hell yeah she really was and fun to be around she always she was she was one of the she never got too rattled when she did, she walked away. Um, but what she didn't have, at least from what I saw, that Vern, even though it was the probably not the right vision, he had one. He definitely had a vision. He had a goal that he was marching towards torpedoes be damned. And so does Vince McMahon to this day. Whereas with Dixie... I don't think she had that vision when she started. I don't think she really had a vision of where she wanted to be or how to get there. Even when TNA was, you know, had been on spike for a while, there was never a clear picture of, of the, of the destination. It's like getting in your car and saying, okay, grab the kids, load up the car. Grab, oh, don't forget the cat. Cause we're going to, where are we going again? Oh, just load up the car and grab the cat. Let's go. Well, great. Everybody's in a car. You're, you know, you gassed up. You got some cold sandwiches in the back. You're off. You're, you're off. You go for a road trip until you get to the first intersection. It's like, well, which way should I turn? Well, I don't know. Where yeah, are we going? ID, ID I'm not really sure. Plan. Let's just keep, let's just keep going. Yeah. Let's just make a decision, take a turn and let's keep going. That's kind of what it felt like to me at least. Yeah. That was one of the, the common things that was brought up to me by a lot of wrestlers. They're like, ideas are not a plan. Dixie would have ideas. She would not have plans. And sometimes it, it, it went that way. Were there anything that you saw? Of course, you, you had a different kind of experience when you worked alongside Dixie and Vince than you did with Vern because you had helped run WCW. Were there anything that you saw either one of them do and you were like, ah, that's a familiar trick. That's something that, that I've, I've utilized and maybe you didn't even realize that other people were utilizing or maybe that they got from you. No, <clears throat> I mean, there, again, there's such, 
polar opposites. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about Vince and, and Dixie, there was nothing that Dixie said, did, or I could imagine was thinking that was anything similar to anything that I've ever heard Vince say, do, or yeah. imagine it might be thinking. That's how different they are. Um, and in working, you know, Vince is a, um, oh, I mean, Vince is a complex guy. I've said it before. I said it in an interview when, while I was still working there. Um, so it's public knowledge, how I feel about him. You know, I respect the hell out of him. I think in many respects, he's a visionary and a genius, and you cannot take that away from him under any circumstances. Now, I think that's separate from his creative abilities in some respects. Um, that's another conversation. But in terms of his vision, what he's accomplished with WWE to take a a wrestling company and turning into what before COVID and other things, you know, a $5 billion market cap company. I mean, you have to be a really, really smart person to do that. And you have to surround yourself with really, really smart people to do that. And he's done all of that. And I didn't see anything like that when I worked with Dixie, obviously, but even in working with Vince, I never worked that closely with Vince. You know, I had meetings with Vince, but it's not like, you know, we huddled in a room for 15 hours a day, six days a week, and I really got to get into the meat, meat and potatoes of, of things with him. It was fast and furious, in and out, quick conversation, off we go. Um, so I never really got to know Vince, to be honest, even when I worked with him as closely as I did, however closely that was, for four months. A few more questions as we as we wrap up. A reminder, guys, check out 83 Weeks. Check out adfreeshows.com. Eric does a lot of bonus shows over there. Uh, 83 Weeks has a great YouTube that with a lot of great clips on it as well. A lot of good stuff. You can learn a lot about the business aspect of pro wrestling from 83 Weeks, especially on that financial side. I always learn a lot about marketing and advertising and the relationships that you developed there uh, as well. We have a unique reader question from a Shane Helms from North Carolina who asks, do you still have your three count CD if not, I can get you one. Shane, that will make my year. I mean, I've got friends and family coming up, coming over, you know, the 4th of July here in Wyoming. I've got my, I, I, we'll put it on out on the deck. We'll celebrate as we're listening to fireworks. Come on, send it my way. That sounds like the CD you would want if you were trying to drive your family away. If you're like, you know what, <laughs> two or three months away isn't enough. Let's fire up. Let's fire up three count. Now, I, in, in where I live, which is kind of in a remote part of Wyoming, yeah. just a little bit east of Yellowstone National Park, and I don't have like neighbors, neighbors, <clears throat> like you would think of it in a city, but there are people that could probably fire bottle rockets from their backyard <laughs> to mine, and I'm afraid that I might come under bombardment at that point. Oh, man. So... Your, your time in WWE, was there anybody that you looked at and you saw that maybe even whether you were familiar with them or not, and you're like, surefire star, they're going to be real good. I like them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. No, it's a great question, and the answer is yes. Okay. The answer is definitely yes. And I, I don't want my hesitation to imply otherwise. My hesitation is manifested by my desire not to mention their names because I don't want them to get the heat. Yeah. I don't want, and I don't want it to become Twitter fodder for everybody else that just loves to be a hater, twist and turn shit. And no matter how nice you try to be or how positive you try to reference something, 
some little jerk off out there is going to, you know, turn it around and say, Bischoff said this. And I didn't say that. So I'm, I'm not going to name their names, but I, I can think of, uh, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go through them in my head. I love Irish whiskey, by the way. Did you know that? I love Irish whiskey. Okay. Clue. Um, well, that's about the only clue I can give you. I can't think of clues for everybody else, but there was three or four people that not that they stood out so much more than anybody else, but what I felt in them, and I didn't get to spend a lot of time with talent, you know, but when we go to a TV taping and I would sit and talk to, to people and start to get to know them. And for me, getting to know them was not just the, on a social level. It was that too. And developing a, a open line of communication. That's important. But what I was really looking for were, were those conversations where I could walk away going, this, this person has not only the confidence in themselves and can articulate a vision for themselves or an idea or a character or even tell a great joke, but do it in a very natural, comfortable way. That to me is like, okay, there may be some charisma there. There may be something to work with there. Or somebody that just felt so strongly and impassioned about something that, although it may have come at me from a, 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 an angle that was less than, you know, talking about the weather, it still reflected, you know, a passion and a, a, a vision of their character um, that to me suggested, okay, there's, there's an element that we could turn up the volume on and play with. And there was a lot of that around me. There really was not just from the handful of people that in my short four months of being there that I got to have those conversations with, but I saw a lot of great talent there that, you know, you got to work with them, you know, yeah. and, and, and again, I'll, I'll reference that um, WWE put that uh, sting savage, you know, interview from the lost sting tapes this past weekend. Um, what you saw there was a natural conversation between two highly entertaining characters that people could relate to. And I, I would love to see much more of that and a lot less of those staged interviews that are so forced, unnatural. Not only do they not advance the story, not only do they not help the talent, they make me disinterested in the story because you're putting forth an element of it that I just find too hard to even think about but you're you're diluting and hurting the character by forcing them into an uncomfortable presentation putting them on live tv in a way that's totally unnatural they don't feel comfortable in and their character takes a hit in the process whereas if you produce those interviews and by producing them i mean not just where the camera the camera angle should we shake it or not shake it or zoom in and zoom out that's like you know production 101 nonsense but producing that talent is finding the elements of the character that you can get them to say that communicates the overall story and the character elements you're trying to convey, but do it in a natural way in their voice, not in some writer's head that has possibly only met the talent once or twice or has limited really interactions with the talent other than just how to get things done and when to do it, you got to get to know that talent and produce according to their strengths and minimize their weaknesses as opposed to saying, okay, this is what we want you to read. And then the talent goes back and they memorize it. And then somebody goes three, two, one, and you're on live TV and you're not feeling what you're saying. You're remembering what you're saying. And there's a world of difference between the two. You mentioned the zooms and the shakes. How did you feel about that? Sometimes I hated it. I hated it. I too. 
I still, every time I see it, I go, oh my God, that was cool for five minutes back in the early 90s. Wrestlers and that I talked to, I had one say, I don't know why I'm taking the bump if nobody can see it. And I was like, ah, I had never even thought about that. But they're like, yeah, it, people can't even see what I'm doing. Well, no, no, there's two different, different okay, we may, talking, we may be talking about two different things. Maybe. There's, you know, there's an ENG style. Do you know what I mean by ENG? I don't. ENG is electronic news gathering, meaning okay, you've got a yeah. shoulder on your camera. There's a fire over there. You're filming it as you're running. Yeah. Okay. That ENG style of shooting and production enhances if you're trying to, you know, communicate a sense of chaos and urgency. Mm-hmm. It works. If it's a backstage segment, it works even better because those backstage segments almost always suck because they're, they can't bump off the concrete. Yeah. Can, but not really you know they're usually street fights and pull aparts and bras brawls which look better if the camera's not locked on the action because if the camera's locked on the action you're going to see through shit you don't want anybody to see through right but if it's in that backstage environment and it's an eng style and oh my god there's a burning building let's go rush and see who's in it i'm cool with it but if we're backstage and you're giving me one of these handheld zoom in zoom out go around in circles look sean a while back long while back I took flying lessons. I got my own airplane. I decided I want to get my instrument rating. One of the things that you do when you get your pilot's license, and even more so when you get your instrument rating or or trying to get it, is they put you under a hood where the only thing you can see just below your eyes are your instruments. The entire cockpit of the plane is blacked out. You have no sense of what's up, what's down, forward, backward, nothing. You're relying solely on your instruments because your brain will play tricks on you. Once you lose your equilibrium or you go into a state of vertigo, you have no idea what's up and what's down. That's how John F. Kennedy Jr. got killed. He flew upside down because he thought he was flying the right side up and ended up in the ocean. Watching those cameras zoom in and zoom out on backstage interviews induces the same level of vertigo that my flight instructor did when he was trying to teach me to look at nothing else but my instruments. The only difference is when I see that now, I'm not looking at my instruments. I'm looking for the remote. I hate it. Any, any way you feel about it in the ring? Cause we see a lot of that. A lot of like when a hit, when a, when a strike is landed, when a bump is made, you get the tight zoom in and then zoom out. It's almost like, like every single bump they take, you, you see that and it goes in and then out. And a lot of times you'll see them physically shake the camera when that happens. Yeah. It depends. You know, sometimes I think it can be effective if it's not overused and, or if it's not being used to camouflage the bump. Yeah. In other words, you know, I see a lot of times, and again, this is not a criticism. This is like, I worship the ground. They freaking walk on kind of a comment. The WWE production team is so good. They are so good. They're almost too damn good. And their timing is so perfect. It's almost too perfect. And as a result of it being too perfect, they can easily make those quick cuts or zoom in, zoom out at the right time to perfectly camouflage something that needed to be a little enhanced. Live TV, you don't get a chance to edit, right? Back in the day when everything was taped, you could you could edit around that stuff, take a wide shot, take a crowd shot, whatever. Um, but now that it's live, you can't. So I think oftentimes you see some of that because your director, your cameraman, whatever, who's calling the shots, your director's calling the shots, doesn't want to take a shot that the audience can see through. But what happens is you become overly reliant on that. And then when it starts happening so often, it actually takes the audience out of the moment. 
Have just a couple more for you. In your wrestling career, you have defeated Ric Flair, Jim Ross, Kane, Lita, Matt Hardy, Shane McMahon, and Trish Stratus. Which of those sticks out in your mind the most from an in-ring perspective? Go through the list one more time fast. Trish Stratus, Shane McMahon, Kane, Lita, Matt Hardy, Jim Ross, Ric Flair. I think the Young Bucks, too. Maybe. Oh, I beat them. I beat them like just cheap rugs. <laughs> you know that kind of rug you get when you go to Walmart because you got friends and family yeah. coming over? You know they all got dogs. Yeah. So you buy the cheapest little knit rug you can find. And <laughs> and, and when you're done and the dogs have made a mess out of it and your, your friends and family leave, you just beat the shit out of that rug to clean it. That's what I did to the young bucks. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um Probably the one that stands out in my mind the most was Ric Flair because there was so much emotion in it and it was so um, believable. The story was be- not that I beat him. That part wasn't, yeah. but the story and everything that led up to it um, was in large part because it was yeah. <laughs> real, at least parts of it. Uh, that's the one that stands out. I just want to make a note two people you have not defeated, but you have competed against David Flair and a guy by the name of Garrett Bischoff, who you were also unable to defeat. It's it's those it's those younger generations, right? It, it it's tough getting old. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> now, one thing, maybe you've got some insight to this, maybe not, but I've tried my damnedest to get a hold of Rick Martell of all people. I've been so interested in his like 1998 WCW run. He was almost barely on TV. He was there for six months, got hurt twice. But he came in really a few years after anybody had seen him. Looked pretty good. Looked looked great as Rick Martell would. Won the TV title and he got hurt. Do you remember the thought process of bringing in a Rick Martell and, and giving him that, that immediate push? I don't think there was any real thought process beyond the fact that he was an established talent with a great look that was better than good in the ring and had some potential to tell stories with. There was brand equity in him still. He had spent a lot of time in WWE. He was young enough. He looked great. He could still move great. And there was a possibility of telling a story there. So it's not like anybody had a plan that they went down and had contacted the USPTO.gov and trademarked and copyrighted. And we went to work on, but you know, he was, he was a viable talented individual who was available. We needed viable talent talented individuals who were available and he had a couple of injuries there one early in his run and then he came back a couple months later and he immediately got hurt did did you kind of know then uh maybe maybe that's it for this run he he is a bit older i think he was 42 at the time and i i think he maybe wrestled one match ever in wrestling after that did you kind of know it was done at that point yeah the handwriting was on the wall you know, and once it depends on the injury, of course, it depends on the talent. But, um, you know, it's funny. You say, well, he was 42 years old at the time. How old is Chris Jericho today? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. how old is AJ Styles today? You know, come on. 42 isn't that old. And, and it, it really wasn't that old back then either. It's not like physiologically we've evolved over the last 20 years so that, you know, <laughs> 60 is the new 30, right? Um he wasn't that old, but he had gotten hurt. And when you're, I think anytime you're over 30, um, 
regardless of the era, depending on the injury, you don't, you know, when you're in your twenties and early, late, late twenties, maybe even the early thirties, again, depending on the injury, you could pretty much heal up and come back at least to a level where you have to work around it. If it's a bad knee or bad hip or bad shoulder, but at 42, depending on the injury, you just don't heal. You don't come back. Your metabolism has changed. Your physiology has changed. And the handwriting was on the wall with, with Rick. It was unfortunate. So many wrestlers have told me, like when, I, when I'll ask them, what contributes to longevity? And some of them said, Vince McMahon bumping contributed to mine because the rings changed when he started to bump. <laughs> they made them a lot softer in WWE. And I was like, wow, that, that's not really something that, that I, had, I had considered. But what works better for him probably is going to work better for them too. Uh, of course. In, in that regard. And as we wrap up, you you were around through what I consider a pretty big genesis in pro wrestling because around the beginning of the 1990s, you would have occasional new gimmick match types. And I know you have said you're not a big fan of the gimmick match types. And we've, seen, yeah, we've seen some of them that made it through. Are there any that you remember that didn't make it through? Because, I mean, I'm sure that you even you were like, I ain't doing that with some of the stuff that was was pitched your way. No, because I basically tried everything that was pitched my way. <laughs> <laughs> I had an attitude, you know, and I still do to this day. Now, I've, you know, I've developed my own filter over the years, obviously. My own philosophy, I think, really more than a filter. Um, but, you know, back then, and, you know, you got to keep in mind, Sean, I was, I was learning on the job, Yeah. right? I, I, had, I got into the wrestling business in 1987. I learned about, you know, television advertising and syndication and, and, and all of that. And I learned about production and I learned about live event promotion and I learned, and I learned about how to be a talent on camera. So I learned a lot about the business of the wrestling business prior to coming to WCW. And when I was in WCW as an announcer, having left AWA, I was a talent. I wasn't involved in creative. I wasn't involved in an AWA. I wasn't involved with it in WCW until about 95 when Nitro came along and I said, okay, I've got to put my fingers in the water here or put my toes in the water. I've got to get involved in this. I tried to stay away from it because I had no confidence in my own abilities. I had no feel for it. I had no desire to get involved in it. But when it was, you know, Nitro and it became my vision for what Nitro was going to come about to be, I had to get involved because nobody else could see my vision as clearly as I could at that time. But when I finally made the decision to jump in and get involved, I was learning every single day. I had never sat in a booking meeting. I wasn't an intern. I wasn't a writer's assistant. I hadn't been exposed to any creative conversations, really, other than the ones where people talk about shit that happened 20 years ago. I got a lot of that. <laughs> but in terms of day to day, what are we going to do next week on TV? I hadn't been a part of any of that dialogue until the day I kind of thrust myself into the middle of it. And every day I was learning on the job. Sometimes I learned a lot. Sometimes I learned what not to do. Sometimes I learned what to do. But my approach, once I really emerged myself into the creative process, is to realize that just because I don't like something doesn't mean the audience won't. There's a lot of things that I hate seeing in wrestling that the audience responds to. Okay, who's right? Who's wrong? They are. They're right. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's wrong. So once I realized that, it was like, okay, I, I don't like this idea, but I'm going to go with it. And we're going to see what happens. So that's a bad way to approach the business because there sh still should be some 
level of, of, of analysis that goes into it. What's the story? Where's the anticipation? Is there enough reality in this story to make me go, hmm, I'll buy into that. You know, are there any surprises that are going to throw the audience off kilter once they think they know for sure where it's going to go? Something happens and makes them realize they don't. Simple tool, right? Television yeah. drama, see it all the time. You know, is there sufficient action and can we convey that action? You know, if I would have asked some of those questions, we would not have seen World War III, for example. Okay. Um, so I did plenty of things that I, I took a flyer on that I ultimately wished I wouldn't have because now I got to yeah. get my ass kicked when people ask me about them. But it's good content, though. It's really good content. You're doing great, it's great with it. content. It's great content. There's a reason for p- people to still hear me talk because they'd like to kick my ass. <laughs> Uh, have you ever seen the Joe Dirt classic or, or the David Spade classic, Joe Dirt? No, I haven't. There's there's a spot where he, he approaches this man selling fireworks on the side of the road, sparsely attended. And I use the term snakes and sparklers a lot with my staff because Joe Dirt goes up to this guy selling fireworks and he's like, why, why do you just have snakes and sparklers? And the guy goes, oh, those are the only kinds I like. And he was there like, you it's go. not about you. And he said, you need some whistling bungholes here, some whisker do's, some whisker don'ts. He's like, you need all these fireworks to get the consumer here. So I think that's a pretty good lesson to learn. Last question, and this is a deep cut. Best hand in wrestling history, Hulk Hogan doesn't count because it's an unfair advantage. Say, say it one more time. Best what was the tan in pro wrestling. Oh. We, know, we know Sting's out of the running. Hogan, we can't pick Hogan, unfair advantage that it's like, it's like number one, everybody else is number two. So I, I'll settle for number two. Mm, God, I didn't have to think about that a little bit Some more. You know, you know what makes this hard is because there was so much fake canning going on. Yes. And there was a period of time when I first started WCW Everybody would rub this like hot oil on themselves. I can't remember what this stuff was called. But every time you walked into the into center stage, once the talent got there, it was like walking into an emergency room or a triage care center, you know, in a hospital in the middle of nowhere. You know, it was horrible smelling. I can't remember the name of it. But uh, everybody had such fake tans. God, I don't know. I, I don't know. Let me There's think. some good main event tans in the day. Like people show up to WrestleMania and you know they've been hitting the beds hard. Oh, they all hit the beds. You have to hit the bed. Those are hot white lights. <laughs> you don't hit the tan. If you don't get a little bit of a tan, you're going to look like a freaking beach fish. You know, you got to get, you, you got to, you know, it's, it's like, you know, movies, you know, it's television. They put everybody in makeup. Have you ever seen any of the talking heads that you watch on television all day and see them without their makeup on? You'd never recognize them, right? It's television. Oh, Come man. on. You gotta wear a tan. Eric Bischoff exposing television secrets right now. Hey, uh, fam is out the window. It's Come gone. On. Tell the people more about 83 Weeks, about adfreeshows.com. I'm, I'm a fan of both of them. Really enjoy them. Well, 83 Weeks, you know, I'm you know grateful as hell for Conrad Thompson. He kind of convinced me that it was the right thing to do, and he had the right format, and he, he proved to be very true. You know, the show is called 83 Weeks. You know, when we first started it, we were going to be, let's just focus on the 83 Weeks head-to-head competition. And we still do that. We break down important shows or moments or situations during the Monday Night War era. Um, but we also talk about how some of those situations, elements, issues 
are relevant to some of the things that we're seeing today and how some of the things, many of the things that were born out of the Monday Night War era that those 83 weeks represent are really important in terms of the way the product is presented today. So it's more of a, a breakdown and an analysis of the Monday Night Wars than it is anything else, and also how some of that still applies today. So it's, we talk, as you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the business of the wrestling business. I didn't travel on the road with a lot of talent. I don't have decades of experience like Bruce Pritchard does, um, you know, because he was so close to the talent. I never was. As an announcer, I was kind of, you know, remote, if you will. Um, as a boss, I was the boss, so I never really got those war, road stories and war stories that, that Bruce has. But I do have a very unique perspective from everybody else's podcast on the business of the wrestling business because I was actually in it. And many of the people that are wrestling podcasters today or people that talk about wrestling po- or wrestling on their podcast have never gotten anywhere near the business of the wrestling business. Guys, check it out. I, I really enjoy the show. Eric, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, follow him at E. Bischoff. But Eric, thank you again. Thank you. And adfreeshows.com, ton, plethora, copious amounts of exclusive content from Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, Bruce Pritchard, Arn Anderson, of course, myself. Get it all. It's great. And, and Conrad's a, a draw at this point, too. I mean, Conrad himself, my God. Every time I talk to him, I feel like I get some scoops out of him. So he's my, amazing. Very he's, smart, very talented guy. Guys, check it out. Adfreeshows.com. Until next time, we're out. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.